Today's sponsor is Hired.com. Hired is the platform for top developer and designer jobs. So if I'm using Hired.com, how many offers would I expect to get? Well, that's the great part about Hired.com, Sean. You sign up once, submit one application, and you get an average of five offers on the platform. And those offers would include the salary and equity up front, right? Of course. That's the way it works everywhere, right? Oh, uh, I don't think that's the way it works, no. Okay, right. So usually you have to go through like three interviews, and then they finally decide they want you, and they give you your salary information, and you're like, oh my god, this is $30,000 less than I wanted, right? But with Hired, you're going to get that salary and equity information up front before you even interview. So that's the like really tricky part about handling a job negotiation is all handled up front, and then you go and you interview, which is a super nice way to do that. What if I'm a contractor or part-time? Hired's got you covered there, too. They have contract and part-time opportunities. And if you if you wanted to work for like a top company like Facebook or Uber or Stripe or some big name like that, those people are all on the platform as well. And the other thing is it's totally free for you to sign up as a candidate right now. And if you do that today at Hired.com slash Bike Shed, all one word, you'll get a $2,000 bonus just for signing up with that link. Thanks again to Hired for sponsoring today's show. Now they have Bash on Windows. They have Bash. They have Ubuntu, generally. Hmm. So why would you run Windows? <laughs> why wouldn't If you're just going to use those, why wouldn't you just run Ubuntu? So that you can still run Windows applications. Plus, you might want your sound to work. That, that too, and Wi-Fi. <laughs> right, and maybe you want to play a game or something. Right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, it's finally the year of Linux on the desktop. <laughs> Hi, Derek. Hey, Sean. So, did you hear about this whole npm apocalypse thing? <laughs> yeah, I did. Who didn't, right? Right. I mean, the, when the entire JavaScript community breaks, you tend to hear about it. Right. And we're known for our hot takes on the bike shed. You know, we get this out immediately. and uh... <laughs> Yeah, it'll be, what, a month after it happened by the time this actually goes out? Yeah, probably like three weeks. But the story is a little is developing, and we're not going to, like, I'm not interested in talking about, like, who's throwing dirt on people or anything. Like, just more of a, this is a really interesting technology problem. Yeah. And talking through some of the solutions of it, I think, would be kind of cool. So give us a recap in case. We'll put recap links in the show notes for people who want more detail. But what's the gist? So there was a person who had an open source package named Kik, K-I-K. There's also a company that owns a messaging service called Kik. And they reached out saying, uh, because they were planning on releasing a node library to interface with their API, and so they reached out to this person saying, hey, is there anything we can do to get you to give up the name because we hold the trademark? And they released the emails and sort of mentioned uh, that, you know, with trademark law, you sort of have to in, uh, you have to inf- uh, enforce your trademark because if you, somebody can prove that you let one thing slide, you, you risk losing the trademark entirely. The author of uh, this library said, no, I'm going to keep the name. The company then reached out to NPM. NPM decided that they would transfer ownership of the package. And the author of this library got very angry and decided to unpublish everything he had ever published to NPM. Among those was a small library called LeftPad, which was an 11-line function that allows you to add padding to the left side of a string. And as it turned out, literally everything ever depended on it, including Ember, React, and Babel. And I think between those three things, you've described everybody who's writing JavaScript anywhere right 
Uh, so, yeah, the entire community sort of imploded, and a few hours later, NPM decided that they were going to un-unpublish the LeftPad uh, library. Okay, so then they, they un-unpublished it. So this, this author also owned over 200 other packages. Right. <laughs> worth noting. The only one, I believe, that they un-unpublished was LeftPad, maybe some other ones? I don't remember. Right, and then another person came in and took ownership, started taking ownership of a lot of them. Right. It was Nathan Johnson, and he was able to grab like over 200 of them just using a script. He noticed, he noticed what had happened, and so he grabbed them and released version 2.0 of each one of them, um, which was empty. <laughs> right. And, you know, it turned out he wasn't trying to exploit anything, but he could have. Particularly, like, he released version 2.0, but by default, people are kind of used to using semantic version specifiers where you do like the pessimistic version constraint or like greater than or equal to or whatever you might do right, right. so if the last version of i don't know let's just use leftpad as an example because that's one of the names i know i know npm unpublished this one but if somebody were to grab leftpad before npm had had become aware of it and unpublished it or whatever and could rectify the situation if somebody were to grab that they could have released a semantically version compatible new version of the library that had some sort of security exploit in it. And that could be... And, and, and just to be clear, a semantically compatible version that was incremented would be 0.0.5 because, you know, there might be breaking changes in padding a string. <laughs> can't, right. can't commit to 1.0 just yet. Right. <laughs> so, right, so I could have released 0.0.0.5 that had either, like, an after install hook in it that removed some important files from your directory or sent them to me or whatever, or I could have just inserted some sort of anything into the library that you wouldn't have noticed because you don't have by default. One of, this is one of the things that is, there's some of this, some of this is, is unique to NPM and some of this is not. I think one of the things, one of the things about this problem that is unique to the NPM is like, you don't have lock files by default. So your deploys can actually change from right. what you have locally. So if this had happened in Ruby, I'm locked to a certain version when I do bundle. So I'd have to actually say bundle update in order to get one of those new versions. But in, in NPM land, I could have just deployed and gotten a semantically compatible version that had an exploit in it. Right. Yeah, um, I think one other interesting take, because there's sort of, if you go to any package manager's uh, GitHub after this, you'll have found, you'll, you'll find an issue where somebody was like, hey, could this have uh, happened to us? And Cargo's explanation was pretty interesting because what they do uh, when you when you yank a version is that will still get served for existing builds. There's no way to actually remove code entirely so that people who are depending on it can't access it anymore. But what they do is when you've yanked something, if you do Cargo update uh, or if you don't have a lock file already, it will no longer resolve to the yanked version. But if you're already referencing the yanked version in your lock file, nothing changes. Oh, I really like that solution. Yeah, well, one one important thing to note that is sort of required for them to be able to have constraints like that, they also don't allow uploading code without a license. Hmm. Because theoretically, a license could say, like, I reserve the right to prevent distribution of this in any way or something like that. Is that what you're... No, it's more that if, if you don't... Pre if it's unlicensed, you retain all rights, including that. Right. I don't actually know what they would what they do in the case where you have code licensed under that. I, I think it still has to be. I think it might have to be a recognized existing license as well. Hmm. Right. Uh, I don't remember specifically that, but I do know for I do know for sure that they don't allow you to upload unlicensed code. Right. Yeah, because there was there was a discussion on like like you said, all of the package managers had 
these discussions like could this have happened to us and it turns out a lot of them the answer was yes like this could have happened to ruby in very much the same way you can yank right. all of your libraries from ruby gems at any point with no restriction i know they were talking about it i don't know i'll pull that issue up as we're talking later but um so there was an issue opened by nate Berkepeck. i hope i say his last name right to talk about these things and there was some conversation back and forth and one of the things that i said on that issue was like are we sure we really need yanking and I knew that it was probably going to get shot down. So I very quickly, like once a couple of people shot it down, including Nick Coranto, I was like, okay, I'm not going to keep pursuing this, but I just wanted to throw it out there. Like, why do we have to support yanking existing versions of libraries? What are the good reasons for doing that? I mean, the biggest one is just, let's say we, let's say we ship a version of Rails that has some critical security flaw, right? Mm -hmm. And we realize it quickly. But actually coming up with a fix is going to take however many hours. In the meantime, we don't want everybody out there updating to a version of Rails that makes their apps have remote code execution vulnerabilities. So what you're going to do is break all of their deploys when they may or may not be affected by this remote code injection? Well, and, that, like, and that's it, and that's what gets into like differences between how Ruby Gems does it, how Cargo does it, right? And Cargo wouldn't break any deploys that had already upgraded to the, the right. to the RCE. Which, to be fair, actually, I think in that scenario you do want to break their deploys. I don't know. Like, I feel like part it's a trade off between who should be in charge of deciding that you can't run insecure code, right? If I've already committed to running, you know, version one point three point X of this insecure one point three point five of this insecure library and you discover it's insecure and try to yank it, what if it's not, It's insecure in a way that it impacts me not at all, right? Um, and now I'm hosed by something you did. On the flip side, right, it's also entirely possible that you'll just be, see, oh, this gem was updated to version 1.3.5, I'll run bundle update, and then not actually be watching for any news around it. Right, yeah. I mean, that's fair. I just, I really like the way that you explained Cargo does it, right? You're not going to break anything that already depends on it. And it's up to those people who are already depending on it to be like, it's up to you. You are responsible for the things your application depends on ultimately. Right. Like um, we can get back to this in the scenario of left pad too. But like if I decide to depend on a version of a library and a security vulnerability becomes published about that library, that's on me to know that and update it. Right. Well, and one thing that's really baffling about, about how NPM handles this, that if, if I rem am remembering correctly, RubyGems does not do this. Why would you make it so that if you unpublish a library that the name immediately becomes up for grabs? I think that's because I think because I've done this before where I've reached out to somebody who has who's like squatting on a Ruby gem. Sure. And I'm like, hey, I really want to use this name. You're not using it for anything. Can you can you hand it over? And usually the answer is, yeah, no problem. And they just yank and then I grab it. They could also just transfer ownership to you explicitly. Mm, yes, that's true. Hmm. That's not what happened in the case where I grabbed a gem from somebody else. They just yanked all versions of it. Okay, so that, do, that does happen with Ruby gems as well. If you yank all versions, the namespace becomes available. Yes. Um, you cannot publish the same version again, I believe. Right. But, but you same could thing, do the right? same semantically version thing, but at least you are guarded by somebody having to explicitly bundle update that gem in order to get to the new version that you released. Sure, but it's also, I don't think most people actually do bundle update specific gem. They tend to just do bundle update. Yeah, I wish they wouldn't do that. <laughs> well, well, or if they do, I wish they would then look at the results of that and be like, okay, this went from version, I mean, to be fair, when I do that, if I, if I see something go from version 1.3.7 to 1.3.8, I don't, I don't care. 
Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> it's like it's like oh, left pads now 0.0.5. I'm not never going to check to see if that if that change now in addition to adding the padding to a string injects uh some nasty javascript into my user's page. I think if I happen to know what left pad did and I saw that it changed, I would be intrigued enough to be like, how did this change? <laughs> so to be clear, left pad puts left padding on strings. Right. That's it. That's exactly what it does to a certain amount, like for basically if you wanted to write a line some text or something like that, you could say left pad this out to 20 characters or whatever. Yeah. Um, add padding so that the string length is, is uh, greater than or equal to a given value. Uh, you just made me think of this when you're like, if left pad goes to version, uh, uh, goes up by version, I'll get really uh, suspicious. Well, there's a, a NPM library called ispositive, which tells you if a number is positive or not. And it's currently a version 3.1.0. <laughs> there have so there been were... two releases that had breaking changes in <laughs> testing whether a number is positive, and the three point one release didn't follow Semver and should have been four point oh. <laughs> testing whether something was positive. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer, I think, for, like as far as could this have been any other library? The answer, any other community programming community, any other package manager for programming languages? The answer is like no, it couldn't have been any other, but it could have been a lot of them. Right. I mean, it just comes down to whether or not... I mean, the, the, there's two distinct issues, I think. There's the yanking that package broke everybody's builds, and then the person taking over all of the all the packages that were yanked, right? Like, mm -hmm. those are two distinct things that different communities will be vulnerable to or not. And the, the first one's just, does yanking exist? And if so, how does it get handled? Do, you still, uh, do existing builds still get that code? Which, pretty sure universe... Like, with the exception of cargo, I don't think I've ever heard of a of a package manager that still serves up yanked versions for existing builds, right? And then the, and then the second question is, does your package manager make namespaces available automatically when when all the versions of a package are yanked? And a lot of package managers do, just don't have yanking at all. <laughs> right, that's what I was saying. <laughs> so there's there's those two issues. There's also the issue of like, I think what people latched onto being absurd in this was that so many things depended on an 11-line function that was trivial to write yourself. Right. And it's only 11 lines because it supports probably more than you need. So I feel like there is something specific about the JavaScript community that makes relying on a package for that more likely than other communities, but I don't think that it's unique to, like wholly unique to NPM and in the JavaScript community. Right. Well, and one thing, because there, there, this has been like a, a rather hot issue on the internet a little bit. Like some people get really defensive and are saying, I don't want to have to just copy paste this function in every project. Of course, I'm going to add it as a dependency. Um, and I think one important distinction to draw here is the difference between application dependencies and library dependencies. Like yes. if you want to have this as a dependency in your application, feel free as long as you understand the cost associated with a dependency. But if you're writing a library... The thing that scares me isn't that everybody's build bro broke because they depended on this package. It's that everybody's build broke because Ember and React and Babel depended on this package. Right. Like, don't add, don't, especially depending on how your package manager handles dependency hell, basically, and considering that there might be version conflict somewhere, don't force trivial transitive dependencies on your users. Right. Try to keep, try not to force any transitive dependencies if you can help it, right? Right. Um, 
And that's not to say don't ever take transitive dependencies, but be considerate of every one you take, particularly in a library. Like in an application, go for it. Like you are you are signing your own <laughs> right. death warrant or whatever death certificate or whatever death warrant. You're signing your own death certificate potentially, but you know it's your risk to take. But when you do that, um, you know, and and you can say the same for if I'm depending on a library that has transitive dependencies, I know that going in potentially, or I should know that. I should be wary of it, but clearly people weren't right i think also just the idea of a dependency going away never crossed a lot of people's minds right yeah that's true and something like leftpad wasn't go and it, like especially in the npm community right where they have a you could have multiple versions of a dependency the transitive dependency hell problem isn't a concern for them really well at least not with something like leftpad right because it's not going to break out of its it's not going to cross library boundaries. Right. Exactly. And there's a space, I think, for libraries that are like a grab bag of useful functions. But that space. <laughs> right. But that space is probably application. Like they like the people who are using that are probably applications, not necessarily libraries. People right. do depend on active support in Rubyland a decent amount. And um, that is unfortunate. Right. And people that I mean, if you're a Rails plugin, whatever, I think that's fair game. Yeah, but if you're just a Ruby library and you depend on active support so you can get like present or something, it's it's akin to doing that, right? It's not quite so good. Well, it's usually with active support. If you just need one thing from it, it's usually really easy to grab that and then change it slightly so that it's implemented as a function and not something that monkey patches the class that it operates on. Right. Exactly. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's just one of those. I, I like a lot of people have this aversion to well what's the alternative do i just copy paste that function into into my code yeah actually it's 11 lines right <laughs> and you don't and you no longer have to worry about the dependency uh going away it updating or having bugs you uh actually are likely to end up reading it and making sure that you understand the complexity that you're adding a lot of times having a lot of dependencies is actually just sweeping complexity under the rug. You aren't avoiding the complexity of whatever that dependency is doing for you by having it come from a library. If that library has bugs, which all libraries have bugs, I'm sure even Leftpad has a bug somewhere, or if it, or if it just doesn't interact with your application the way you expect, you ultimately need to understand what it's doing. Yeah, that seems, that seems reasonable to me. Um, and there are certain dependencies you should absolutely take under any circumstance, like encryption dependencies, if you're dealing with, you know, like you don't want to write your copy paste your own crypto functions into your application. If your dependency needs cryptography and you are not a cryptography library, then depend on whatever cryptography you need. Yes. Um, there are certain things that obviously these guidelines do not apply to. Um, and that's certainly one of them. I think concurrency is another one, like concurrent Ruby. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if you need a thread pool... Use concurrent Ruby. Don't write your own thread pool. Right. This thread of the conversation reminds me a lot of, yeah, the article title was from early February. It's called Kill Your Dependencies. And it was like, it was making the argument in Ruby land, we take dependencies for things we don't necessarily need to take dependencies for. And I felt like the conversation that was happening around the left pad IO, the left pad incident, incident, as we'll call it now, kind of mirrored a lot of the feelings I was seeing there. And when I originally read Mike's article, I was kind of nodding, but also kind of saying like, I feel like this is great advice for library developers and not great advice for app developers. Right. Like killing your dependencies is totally giving up on code reuse, which seems like, I, I don't know, like, yes, we're not super great at it, but, you know, there are cases where it works really, really well. And on an application level, it's an easy decision to get into and then get out of so long as you firewall those dependencies as much as you can. 
So, okay, here's a question for you. If code is copy-pasted, is that code reused in independent projects? That particular version of the code is reused, but there's no, like, improvements to it are not shared alike, right? Right. So improvements to it could be speed improvements, they could be security improvements, they could be feature improvements. So I think it's shared at that instant, but then the share, like, then it's two, it's two separate copies of that thing. But there, there are things that just aren't going to have improvements to them, like adding padding to a string. Sure, but or like, I would I th- would think you could say checking if a number is positive, but apparently that's not the case. Right, and there are certainly like this article gives examples of like the fog gem. I think it is depends on thirty nine other gems. <laughs> right, it's like okay, maybe don't do that, or maybe depend on exactly the pieces that you need. And I think that's maybe what you're intended to do with fog. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I think one of the issues there, and we have a, a similar issue in Rails, although we do hacky stuff to work around it, um, is that RubyGems doesn't have any concept of an optional dependency. Right. Like Rails would love to be able to say, hey, uh, we optionally depend on the PG gem, and if you're using us with the PG gem, here are our constraints. Uh, and instead we have to we, we have to basically call gem when uh, the Postgres adapter is loaded, which... A means that loading that class has side effects, which is terrible. And B, you're now also forced to add the PG gem explicitly to your gem file instead of somehow opting into an optional feature of Rails. So how would that work? So you you think that if there were optional dependencies, like I was thinking the way it would work is if there were optional dependencies, I would still have to put that dependency in my gem file. I think you would you wouldn't say like I uh, I depend on PG. Mm-hmm. I think you would say, I, I think it would work similar to how it does in, in Rust, where you just uh, specify the features that you want, the optional features, which may or may not then add transitive dependencies from that. Because you're not interacting with the PG gem. There's no reason that you should, that you should put it in your gem file. I'm, of course, you should explicitly say somewhere in your gem file, I am using Postgres here, but I don't think that needs to be, I am using this version of the PG gem, as opposed to just telling Rails, I would like you to turn on the Postgres feature, and you decide whatever the hell you need to make that work. So you, your proposal, your, your, your idea, it's not, maybe not an official proposal, is like in your gem file, when you say gem, you would say like gem, Rails, and then with dependencies, Postgres or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, or, or with, de- with dependency PG or whatever. Yeah, or, or call it features, maybe. Right. Sure. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I guess that's you're saying you got that idea from Cargo as well. Yeah, that's that, that's uh, in Cargo. You can just uh, mark dependency as optional, and then you automatically have a feature with the name of that dependency. And then you can also just declare your own features, which can just be bags of features and of of other things. Um, and then you can also reference them at compile time, if uh, like with conditional compilation, saying compile this code if the, if this feature is enabled. So it can be a combination of including optional dependencies and changing the the code itself. Right. I'm looking up the like I'm looking up the fog dependencies right now, and it's it is just like fog Google, fog JSON, fog local, fog OpenStack, fog Power DNS. Like they're just yep. adapters. So I think what you're actually meant to do is depend on like I don't know if there's like a fog core. Yeah, there is a fog core. So you would depend on like fog core and fog AWS or something like that. But then right? why would you even have the metagem? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe for backwards compatibility. Yeah, I could see that. I right. don't know. Right. So like Mike picked on the fog gem a little bit, but I don't know. There was probably reasons why they did. Why they did what they did. So I think that's what you're meant to do there. But so in the case where you had optional dependencies, you would say I depend on fog with the AWS feature. Right. 
and it would say, okay, well, then you need Fog AWS, and Fog tells me, it, the version of Fog you're running tells me that for the Fog AWS feature, you require you know, Fog AWS greater than or equal to 0.6.0. Well, and it doesn't tell you any of that, right? It just works like transitive dependencies anywhere else. Right. Well, the, fo- the Fog would tell you that, right, through its optional, through its optional dependency declaration. Well, it would tell Bundler that. It would tell Bundler. Yes, yeah, sorry. Sorry. Right. And then no, you, would, yeah. you, would, you would learn of this through your gemfile.lock, basically. Right. Right. Yes. Which is totally fine. Oh, I like this. Has this has to your knowledge, is there a discussion of this happening anywhere? I don't know if this has ever been proposed to Ruby Gems. I, I feel like it must have at some point. I don't know. I should look and, and maybe propose it because Rails would be able to use it like very nicely. I'm trying to think of like there's clearly more complexity that we're not thinking of. Well, you'll want to know whether or not a feature exists. Uh, you'll want to be able to ask at runtime whether or not you were required with a certain feature. Right. And given that Ruby just sort of has that, you know, the global script soup, <laughs> there, the, the API for that would need to probably involve you, like, specifying the name of the gem. So you wouldn't be able to say, hey, was I required with this feature? You'd probably have to ask, say, like, hey, was this gem required with this feature? Mm-hmm. There's, there can also be weird stuff with, like, do you want to be able to make features mutually exclusive? Which I think the answer to that's probably no, because otherwise you can just never, you, you'd never be able to resolve multiple versions. Right. Yes, but yes, there is complexity, especially when it comes to version resolution. Right. So I think those changes would be cool. I'm going to pull up the issue on Ruby Gems to see, because I unsubscribed from it once people were like, no, we're, getting, we're not going to get rid of yanking. <laughs> oh, there's 44 comments. I don't think I'm going to get an overview here. Have you followed this at all? I have no idea what's happening. Yeah, although I, I unsubscribed from the issue this morning. <laughs> so what's going on? Is, is there any movement on the Ruby Gems front to see what Ruby Gems answer to this is going to be? I mean, it seems like they're they're just maybe discussing a policy change to Yank, but they haven't actually announced that they want to do anything. And, and I unsubscribe because at this point, it's mostly noise of a another person coming in and saying, Yank is terrible. We should get rid of it, oh. which has been said 20 times. I gave up. I was the first person to say that and then quickly gave up. I was like, okay, cool. It's cool to try and make that point. And then when the maintainers of the project say no and other people say no, it's like, all right, well, I'm not going to win this. Back off. Like cool like yeah. i think i gave both people who responded a thumbs up to mean like okay acknowledged i like that new feature of github by the way to be able to just like to give a reaction to a comment or a commit or something like that yeah um so i just gave both of them a thumbs up to say like yep got it i'm not going to keep pushing this issue like it's fine yeah and then in the meantime npm has released their changes which are basically that they're only going to allow you to yank automatically yank a version that is less than 24 years old or 24 years old <laughs> that is less than 24 hours old <laughs> um, and that'll allow you to unpublish it then and it'll be completely removed in the same policy where you can't publish um, something with the same name in the same version again if it's older than 24 hours you get a contact support once you contact support they're going to make sure it doesn't break their, their policy here says it's going to make sure it doesn't break any other installs I assume what they mean is it doesn't break any other dependencies, any other libraries, because breaking any other install would be if it has any downloads at all, then right. it would break At which it point, itself. it seems like, why do you need to email support? You could just encode that pretty easily. They must know what libraries depend on, you know. I, well, I would imagine they have code for it, because right. they're not going to go manually search through every single package on NPM. Right. Well, maybe the, maybe the idea is basically we're going to find which ones and, may, and we'll point you at them and try and facilitate a discussion about it or something. I don't know. And then if every version of a package is removed, it's going to be replaced with a security placeholder package so that the formerly used name will not be susceptible to malicious squatting. 
um, which I think is really interesting. So it's no longer like one of those, like I'll yank all the versions, you go claim it kind of thing right. that we were talking about earlier. And if you eventually want to, if you want to take that over, like somebody did yank all the versions, then again, you can contact support and they'll make a case by case decision on whether or not they're going to let you do that. Yeah. I mean, it's no different than just name squatting. Right. Which kind of like brings back the original issue, right? was like, what set this off was somebody had the, had the package name kick and the company kick tried to get that package name back and NPM relented. And the person who authored the original package and 200 plus others, like, was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be part of this if you're just going to capitulate to all these corporate interests. And so that seemed like a very strange reaction because it seems like everybody was just following the law. Maybe. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know if Kick's trademark was really applicable to a library that I don't know what Kick was intended to do, but if it wasn't doing the same thing, if it wasn't doing anything messaging related, say, does Kick's trademark automatically extend to any development realm or something like that? Like what is probably to software, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean I guess it is still software. I mean, at the end of the day, right? You gotta think about that namespace. Doesn't matter whether the ex- the thing that's using is messaging related or not, if they want to use that that name to release something messaging related. Maybe, but somebody else was there first, right? Like if you, we had a discussion about this earlier at lunch today. Like if you go to Nissan.com, you expect to find a car, right? But it's not, unless somebody, <laughs> unless he finally bought it. No. Right. So it's this guy whose last name was Nissan and he bought Nissan.com years and years and years ago. And then Nissan came calling and was like, we need this. We're going to sue you and we want it back. And he just refuses to give it back. <laughs> Right. Right. So just because some company with an established trademark decides they want to move into previously existing space doesn't automatically give them rights to everything that with that name in that space. Like if there was a company called Rails and they came along to Ruby Gems and were like, um, we'd like to release a gem with the name Rails. Right. Well, and, and with trademark law, you are allowed to keep your usage of the name if either your usage of it uh, came before their trademark was established Mm-hmm. And you can and you can prove that you don't have malicious intent, or if you can prove that they uh, knew about your usage of it for uh, a significant period of time and decided not to do anything about it. Right. And it does. It, it also seems like, like if this, I was just trying. Like I don't know the the patent or the trademark law, and maybe there are some lawyer developers who are tearing their hair out right now. But like, if somebody were to actually make that request to me in a friendly manner, I'd just be like, yeah, all right. Like, you know, like it makes sense, especially if it was something that was not already dependent on, which was my understanding of this package was like it didn't do anything yet, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was in development, I think. Right. So I think I'd just be like, yeah, it's it's not worth fighting over this. Your company name is Kick. Okay. So I don't think NPM was necessarily wrong. I don't think it's a slam dunk case, but I don't think like I could see the decision they made and I think the reaction to it was like super unfortunate and I don't know if like it was totally thought out about what it was going to do to the ecosystem. Well, I don't think they thought that he was then going to respond by removing everything he's ever done. No, but I wonder if he knew that that was going to be the fallout from it. Uh, Like all these things depended on it. And I wonder if Azer, has Azer posted since? I don't think so. He posted when he was doing it. Right. Yeah, I read that. Anyway. And I would just wonder if, you know, he would have done it differently had he known what the outcome was going to be. Maybe not because it got the attention that he wanted to the issue, right? Which was, you don't own what you think you own that you published to NPM. 
um, I guess that was yeah. the issue. I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I like. I don't think NPM was wrong here. It seems like a reasonable case, especially what, since they had a package that they were about to release under a different name that was for Kix API for messaging. Mm-hmm. Clearly, they wanted, you know, they weren't trolling in any legal sense. Right. And sure, you, like whether or not their legal claim was valid really can't ever be answered until it actually goes to court because I don't think there's ever been a case that was specifically in these scenarios. So every, you know, lawyers can, can look at all of the contracts and, and say it would likely go one way or another. But at the end of the day, if it's not tested in court, it's not tested in court. But why go to court over something like this? And it seems like uh, this person was upset that NPM didn't go to court for him. <laughs> right. And, and like, I could also see where Azer became kind of irate. Like the original emails that were sent to him the first one was okay. The subsequent emails were not super friendly, nor were his responses. Like the whole thread has been published now. Well, maybe not the whole thread, but Kick's uh, representatives have published segments of the thread anyway, which we can link to in the show notes. And there was room for everybody to be a lot kinder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like the, the, you know, the only line in the entire thread that was at all negative from Kick's side was was if you actually release an open source project called Kick, our trademark lawyers are going to be banging on your door and taking down your accounts and stuff like that. And we'd have no choice to do that because uh, you have to enforce your trademarks or you lose them. Right. Which, I mean, I, that could probably be phrased slightly nicer. Right, but as in not, not, a, a, not a threat. A statement of fact. Well, they're not going to come bang on his doors. Like, <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's, a, that, that's what I mean. That's a, a poor way to phrase it. Right. But um, yeah. So that's that's the thing. It would it probably would have set me off as well if I'd already taken the stance that I wasn't going to give you the thing, and you come back with that rather than being like, I don't know. Anyway, whatever. I, I mean, my reading of it was then they came back and said, actually, we do have the legal right here. Yeah. So that was that's like the should this have ever even happened? And like I, I think we both kind of agree with like yeah, probably MPM made the right decision by being like yeah, we're gonna give this namespace back to the company. They have a, a legal right to it. Um, it's unfortunate what happened afterwards, but, and then, like we said, that blew up into a whole, like, oh my gosh, why is everybody depending on left pad? (laughs) And then it came, oh my gosh, are we all susceptible to this in our development communities? And mostly, yes, it just hasn't happened that way other places. So it's interesting to watch all of the different fallouts from that. We were talking earlier about the decision to whether or not depend on a jam or not. And I wanted to call out uh, Ellie, one of my coworkers in New York, in the New York office, wrote an article called To Jam or Not to Jam, which came out in uh, mid-February. And it was basically all the the things that she weighs as whether or not she's going to take a a jam as a dependency. I thought it was really well considered, well written. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well. And it sums up a lot of kind of how I feel about it as well in a much more (laughs) well thought out manner than I presented here probably. Yeah. What else do we have to say about left pad? Where's right pad? You have to use a web service for that. <laughs> I, I did love all of the responses. Like there were three or four libraries on uh, on uh, Crates.io published called left pad uh, <laughs> with various hyphenations. There's left pad as a service now. Yep. I mean, and it's poking fun, but like this could have been anything. Like it is a little funny because of the size of the and scope of the library that caused all of this, but it could have been something else just as easily. It could have been, but the fact that it is that 11 lines and the fact that it was version 0.0.4 is just so 
so JavaScript. <laughs> well, nowadays, I think NPM starts, if you like use NPM to create a package, it starts at 1.0.0, which is also a little presumptuous of it, I think, that you know the public API you want to hammer out immediately and that people won't be upset when you just constantly increase that uh, major version. Yeah, I mean, I think when you start everybody at 1.0, you just nudge people towards a community where you don't necessarily respect Semver. I mean, I, I always got the impression that the JavaScript community really wanted to do Semver. I don't, I don't, I'm not in it very much, but like, what's your impression of their implementation, of their carry through on that? I don't know. I don't do enough yeah. JavaScript, but yeah. uh, like, I think it just, if, if your default is uh, 1.0, too many people still see 2.0 as like a marketing thing. And so when they when they're making a minor breaking change, I think put weight on going to 1.0, right? People are just like, well, this is just a, a tiny breaking change, and it'll probably break somebody, but I don't really want to be 2.0 just for that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. We did we do we need to sum up? Did you sum up? We summed up, right? I don't know. Uh, don't push trivial dependencies on your users. Right, that's the biggest takeaway. I think if you are a library maintainer, consider every library very, very carefully. Every library you're going to uh, depend on very, very carefully. And as an application owner, you should also depend, you should also consider them carefully, but you have a little more leeway. I would honestly, for leftpad, even for applications, I would just copy paste it. Well, that's the other thing that's happening too. People, people were like, why isn't this just in the standard library? If so many things are depending on it, it's a very basic thing to want to do. And I think there is a proposal to add it to the standard uh, that's already I mean, in flight. But... I saw that as well. People like with this assumption that it's obviously a thing that should be in the standard library. Ruby is the only language I can think of that has that in its standard library. Um, I think that languages that come with like runtimes, like I don't know, like C sharp or whatever, and Java. Yeah, no, Java doesn't have it in, in its uh, standard lib. Well, uh, well, string technically dot... everything does because uh, Sprintf has it, does it. Okay, well there you go, and string left exists in c sharp in the dotnet framework and also like i i when i saw that i was like i wonder how this plays like with you know our conversations about rust have been like the standard library is intentionally very small so like would rust ever consider something like left pad well that, i think in rust a same as a lot of other languages it's, it's in it's yeah. in the format uh, yeah. macro but then b i think most rust folks would argue just put that code in your create when you need it right because it's just not worth sharing <laughs> i don't know it's it's like how many times do you see a method or a function somewhere with a comment above it that is a stack overflow url uh frequently <laughs> right and it's like people are comfortable with that but not with inlining left pad mm-hmm. which to me I, I would have more expected that to see that function with a stack overflow url above it than as an npm module I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I do like when the, there's a Stack Overflow URL because I love to like then if it's only a Stack Overflow URL, I like to think of like what is the search term that brought them here? <laughs> because oftentimes, sometimes it's perfectly fine. Sometimes it's like you monkey patched Active Record with this thing from Stack Overflow. Like at least you left a, t- a trail for me to like try and figure out why. But like you could just call another object or whatever the case may be right yeah um anyway this is literally why we why we added application record yeah i'm pretty excited i I was originally like why do i need this another thing in my inheritance tree like blah 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 but then like 
I, as I started thinking about it more, I was like, oh, I really like the idea of a day where like requiring a library doesn't necessarily patch Active Record Base for me. I have to or requiring then... libraries. Well, yeah, I guess you have a place to include a module now. Right now, they, instead of doing that, they could be like to use this library, add it to your gem file, and then go here. And if you want this subset of functionality, you can just include these modules, right? That kind of thing. People aren't going to do that, though. They're not, but I think it should be something they should consider. Like, it's a design I, I think should be considered. Even if it requires doing, like, add the gem as a dependency, do require false, and then, you know, do something else in application record to, like, only do it in, in like, its little sandbox yeah. inheritance hierarchy mode here. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, w I wish that was a thing that I expected library authors to do. But I think library authors will still be monkey patching because, oh, I don't want to have to make people add a, a, a whole line. <sighs> or it's really, I don't think it's the whole line necessarily. It's like the two-step thing. Like you could just depend on this gem and be done. Now you have to open this file and put and paste this thing in there. Which is how you depend on a gem. Well, but you have to, you have to do that twice. <laughs> you have to do it in the gem file and then also in application record. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 59. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.